Welcome. You are listening to a sermon preached at Church at the Armory. If you like what you hear, share it. God bless you. Fantastic. But what I want to preach to you today is, or teach to you today, is kind of similar. And uh, you're not, look, if I said what I was preaching today, you wouldn't have come to church, okay? Okay, this is the title of my message, For Reals. The Law. Yes, please. Y'all ready, to, y'all ready for this? <laughs> if you want to leave, go ahead, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm teasing, not really. Please don't do that. It hurt my feelings. If I say the law, we, we immediately think of what Paul taught about, like, the schoolmaster, right? We immediately think what Paul taught about uh, the idea that the law was insufficient to bring us to Christ, and he's not wrong. He's right. Amen. The entire scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But when I say the law, we narrowly focus it into the idea of what Pharisees did. Does that make sense? The law, what Pharisees did. When the law of God, the big picture law of God, is way bigger than just the small slice of the pie of what the Pharisees tried to um, to uh, manipulate and control people with. The law of God could be everything from the law of nature, creation, the law of seed time and harvest, right? The law of sowing and reaping, the law of blessing and curses. All these things fall into the instruction of God. And like I I, I preached a few weeks ago about an order and chaos, right? Where there is order, there is law. There is, there is teaching. There is structure. Where there's chaos, there's an absence of such. The law is not bad. Somebody please say amen. amen. Now, if you think of, if you, if you, if you all, you can think of when I say the word law is how the Pharisees controlled and manipulated people, then yeah, that's bad. But if, but if the definition of the law isn't all-encompassing of the entire order of God's kingdom is in the law. His statues, his truths, his statements, his structure, his ways. If I said, if it, so in the Bible, the ways of the Lord and the law of God are the same thing. The instruction of the Lord and the law of God, same thing. Okay, so the law is not bad. The law is actually good. The law is good. The law is not bad. If I was going to write the longest book of the Bible, the Psalms, and I was going to write in there like Psalm 1, I'm going to start off with the the best one, right? Right, what's your favorite Psalm? Most of you are going to say 53 or not. No, 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 nobody's going to say 53. <laughs> uh, you're going to say like, you know, 20, 25 and 24 and 23 and or whatever. You're going to say 91 or something like, something like that. See, the first Psalm goes like this. Let's read it together. The first Psalm says this, how blessed is the man. Everybody say blessed. blessed. So right there, what we're seeing is a natural law being put into motion. And the idea that there are certain things God blesses and there are certain things God curses. And if you want to be in the blessings, then you got to do what God blesses. And you can't do what God curses and call it blessed. That makes sense? Now, I know that's that's a new revelation to the modern church. But you can't do what God curses and call it blessed. I can't, before marriage, shack up with some 
from, with some, from somebody, a member of the opposite sex, and say, well, God bless my marriage. Well, you ain't heard that one preached in a long time. You see what I'm saying? God doesn't, God doesn't bless what God has said he curses. And it's weird how the modern-day Christian expects God's blessing, or whenever they don't get God's blessing, they think God is the bad guy because they're doing what he curses rather than doing what he blesses. Because he has a standard. He has these, I don't know what you'd call them, what's a weird word, laws? You see what I'm saying? So the law is good. And the first psalm, it, the, the, the psalms are books, uh, uh, songs of worship, right? And the first one doesn't deal with how big and majestic God is. Doesn't deal with like the God of creation or the God of universe. Or, those psalms exist, but not the first one. The first one has to deal with the man of righteousness versus the man of unrighteousness. The blessed man, first psalm out of the gate. How blessed is the man who does not, everybody say, walk, stand, stand, sit. sit. This is a gradual progression of how sin will take over your life. You begin to walk in the counsel of the wicked. You begin to listen and walk with those who are saying things that are contrary to what? God's, his statues, his order, his teaching, his instruction, his laws. So the first thing you do is you, you know, you know, a husband and a wife, this is the first thing you do, is, they, is they'll, get, they'll get sideways with one another. And either the husband, he's going to go out and he's going to start talking to his buddies. He's going to go, man, that, that lady at my house, she's just this and that and that. And either he's got a godly friend who will say, hold up, buckwheat. This is how this thing works. For Christ so loved the church, right, that he laid down his life. In the same way, a husband will love his wife. Are you laying down your, wife, your life for your wife? That's a good friend. Somebody say amen. Or he's going to go around somebody who's going to be like, yep, I had an old hag one time treat me that way. I kicked her the... And you begin to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Or really, you can begin to walk in the counsel of somebody who will instruct you opposite of God's laws, his ways. And when you do that, you'll notice what happens is what might be start off as a brisk walk starts beginning to slowly. You hear more and you hear more and you hear more until you stand still. In the path of sinners. So you're off the road, the way, the for for wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way, the road that leads to eternal life. And on that narrow road is the laws of God. But you get off, you you slow down and you and now you're standing in the path of sinners. And all God wants you to do is get up and start walking back to the right road. But no, no, no. Once you stand still. Then you sit down. And now you're seated firmly in a place when you should be seated with Christ in heavenly places with his mind. Now you're seated in the seat of scoffers, which means at one point you were just walking, considering a different way, and then you stood still in it, and now you've set into the point where now you mock what you used to believe. 
It's called faith deconstruction for those, reconstruction, deconstruction for those modern people. Where now we're mocking what used to be when what used to be is the law of God. You know, out there today. So this is the progression of sin. How sin, this is the first thing the psalmist decides to sing about. Of all the things, this is how the man, the unrighteous man, comes to a halt and gets rooted in the, in the wrong way. Verse 2 says this, His delight blesses the man who does not, but his delight, not his tolerance for, not his acceptance of, not his unwilling acceptance of, but he's in love with the law of God. First thing that the Psalms teach us is the man of God is in love with his ways. The man of God is in love with his law, his statutes, his teaching, his commandments. The person of God doesn't just tolerate them. Well, I guess I can't. What? Fill in the blank of anything. I guess I can't go, you know, murder somebody because, you know, God doesn't want me to do that. No, I'm in love with the idea of not ending life. So his delight's in the law of the Lord, and on his law, his law is on his mind and his heart. He meditates. He chews on it like a cow, repetitively chewing on his cud. He chews on it day and night. It's always in his heart. He's meditating on it, okay? So that man shall be like a tree planted by streams. Y'all see how it says that, verse 3? No, verse 3 says, he will be like a tree firmly planted. I mean, like immovable. So what you have, look at me, what you have is you have the picture of the unrighteous man who's, who uh, becomes firmly sitting in a place of scoffing versus the righteous man who becomes firmly planted because of the law next to a stream that always gives life. That's the law of God. Somebody say amen. Like we want that. Somebody say amen. We want that. Which fills, it yields fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does prospers. Look at me. The mo- one of the number one reasons us as Christians aren't prospering, I use the word prosper not in terms of your bank account, but in your, your, your uh, health of your mind and your emotions and your will and your life, is because you're trying to live a double life. You're trying to say, I'm in love with Jesus, or I fear God, but I also want to do these things with that, 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 that had been suggested to me by the scoffers. And you're living this double life. No, when you, the only way you can truly prosper in your heart, your mind, your will, your emotions, like really be at peace in this world, is to be fully in love and delighted with the law of God. Amen. His teachings, His ways, Amen. His instruction, His counsel. The very first question when you're going to run into a problem is what should I do? Is what does God say about it? Right? So everybody knows how that psalm goes. Let's get on. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. So, you know, well, that's nice. That's David. That's what David said, Chester. But what does Jesus say? See, Jesus, he destroyed the law, right? Jesus destroys the law, right? No. No, no, no. Jesus is opposed to the law. He came to do away with the law. I don't know who told you that. That's just not true. Matter of fact, these are, I wish we could put this in red. 
These are Jesus' words. Do not think. Do not presume. Do not think that I came, Jesus talking, to abolish or nullify or destroy the law. He did not. And not only did he not, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. That word fulfill is kind of a weird word because you think it like brings to completion and it's not really what it means to bring to completion. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't when Jesus comes, he doesn't tie up the bow on the law and it's done and it's over and now it's a different system moving forward. No, that word fulfill literally means this. Phrase, what it means? To bring true meaning to. Now think about that. And think about the word fulfilled meaning to bring true meaning to. Right? Let me explain it to you this way. I got married to my wife. We'll celebrate 23 years here in about two weeks. I feel fulfilled. Does that mean I want to end this segment? <laughs> like, well, my, I'm fulfilled in my marriage, so we'll end this section of marriage and I'll just go do something else. That's not what fulfilled means. But that's how we interpret it to mean when it comes to the law is since Jesus fulfilled it, that means that part's over. No, how many of y'all fulfill, you know, I'm like, I feel fulfilled in my marriage. It means I feel like I've, I've, I've given to my life true meaning in this marriage. Does that make sense? There's a sense of fulfillment. Could be whatever. Like you could be doing your ministry or your calling. You could be doing something you know you're placed on this earth to do and you feel fulfilled. Does that make sense? So when Jesus came, he didn't come to, to end the law. He came to bring true meaning to it. Everybody say true meaning to. So look at me. Since the time of Moses and the handing down of the Mosaic law, it's always been carnal-minded men who've been trying to interpret or bring meaning to what God has said. Does that make sense? And so now you're in a system thousands of years later where what God said is so conjoluted by what man has tried to say what God has said that Jesus comes to bring true meaning to what God has originally said. And what qualifies Jesus to do that? Only God can interpret God. Only God can bring true meaning to what God has said, which is going to be the problem. Because he's claiming to be the son of God. And for that reason, they want to off with his head. Right? So, don't think. This is what Jesus said. Don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, nullify. If Jesus would have stood up at his first sermon and said, I came to nullify the law, they would have stoned him outside of the city. That is straight up heresy. Remember at his trial, they said he was a heretic for saying, I will destroy this temple and build it back in three days. If he would have started off his ministry three and a half years before he dies and said, I came to destroy the law, it would have been heresy. His ministry would have been over. See what I'm saying? Because that's not what he came to do. He didn't come to nullify. He came to fulfill. I came to bring true meaning to is what he's saying right here. Go to verse 18 for me. For truly I say to you, whenever you read that phrase, you need, to, you need to read it in your modern English. Listen to me. 
y'all got children? You're instructing your children what to do, and they're like not really paying attention. And then you grab them by the little cheeks and say, look at me and listen. Y'all do that? Okay. <laughs> right? Okay, like pay attention. Right here. Focus. Listen. This is what for truly I say to you means. What I'm about to say is very important. I need you to pay attention. That's what he says. Okay? For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one small stroke, not a little, not the smallest letter of the smallest stroke of the smallest letter will pass away from the law. How can we ever say that the law, Jesus came to do with it, do away with it, when he literally, by his, by his own words, he's saying, until heaven and earth pass away, this law will remain. Does that make sense, what I'm saying to you? So the law remains until all is accomplished. All is not fully accomplished yet. Verse 19 says this. Therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, this is why Paul says teachers need to be careful because there's a higher standard for teachers. Like you'll answer to God for things you taught. And one of the things Jesus says, if you nullify one of the least of these commandments, there's there's a price to pay. You become the least in the kingdom. But whoever keeps and teaches Uh, whoever puts these into practice in their life, you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. There's going to be lots of people on television or whatever who's preached really great sermons who's going to be least in the kingdom when we get to eternity. You know why? Because it wasn't about the sermon they preached. It was their ability to keep the commandments of God in their heart. that's That's why the most unassuming person in this room can be great in God's kingdom because they're faithful. I'm preaching better than you're shouting, but I'm preaching good. Verse 20. And then Jesus says this should scare the um, baloney out of you. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Uh, well, this is where you, when you're reading the scripture, you just kind of go real fast through this verse and skip forward. Right? Like, don't pay attention, just skip forward. Well, what he, or this is what we did, what he really meant to say was, what he meant to say was, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So what he said is what he meant to say. What is the number one job of the Pharisees and the scribes? To try to keep the law and try to teach others how to do the same. It was the last three things he just went over, keeping it, and teaching others. And he's saying right here, unless you're able to surpass the Pharisees, you don't get to go into heaven. You don't get to come into the kingdom. Now again, again, listen to me. If your definition of the law is only like... Uh, if you wear two, if you wear a piece of clothing made out of two different materials like cotton and poly spandex, then you you know you got to be sent outside the city or whatever. You know what I'm saying? If that's what you think when you think the law, that's not what we're doing. Because what's going to happen right now, from this point forward, is Jesus is going to start teaching what the law truly means. Not a different law. Not a, that was the old T law, and this is the new T law. Get Old Testament and New Testament out of your brain. Same law, 
just the truest, most perfect meaning that actually only God could provide. No man could provide the truest meaning of what the old law is now old, what the law means. But now Jesus comes on the scene and he's saying, I'm come to bring true meaning to what the law is. And actually, you need to be able to keep it to the point that it surpasses the Pharisees. Because the Pharisee could never murder, but he could have hate in his heart. So that's why you can surpass the Pharisees, because you can actually not murder and actually not have hate in your heart. Does that make sense, what I'm saying to you? So this is what he says. This blew my mind. Verse 21. You heard that it was ancients were told, the ancient ones were told, uh, the people of old in the Greek, the ancient ones. These were, this, okay, um, the way I used to think about this verse was the idea that Jesus, you know, this is where we're at where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Right? I've always thought in my heart that when Jesus said, you've heard it said, the ones he's talking about who have been speaking are the Pharisees or religious leaders or people who taught the law. That makes sense? You've heard the Pharisees say, but I say to you. That's how I've always thought that this scripture is supposed to be interpreted. But there's a problem here. Who said thou shalt not murder? It wasn't Pharisees who said that. God said that. So literally, now this, y'all just hang on because don't get weird on me. Literally, Jesus is saying, you've heard it said what God said, but I say to you. Now, at first you're like, that's, that's blasphemous. That's the first feeling we get, right? You can't do that. That God said that. Who is this man? This is not some Pharisee teaching other Pharisees. This is the Son of God, the Son of Man, who's saying to you, this is the way you were presented to it first. I've come now to bring deeper meaning to what he said the first time. You were told, don't murder. I say to you, it's not enough not just to murder. You can't have hatred and anger in your heart. And if you, this is how you can keep the law, because it went from being everything external out here to in the spirit. This is why Paul says, not the letter, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Look at me. If you don't remember anything else I say, Jesus came to baptize the law in the Holy Ghost. He put spirit on it. Well, what do you mean by that? Really, really weird statement about Jesus and baptism. John the Baptist is baptizing people, right? And they, he was, his baptism was to what? Repentance. And in what? Water. Yet what we've done is we've created baptism, modern take, is about Jesus' baptism into salvation. We've created water baptism and made it Jesus' baptism into salvation. That baptism was what John's baptism was. Repentance unto salvation in water. Jesus 
John the baptizer in water looks at Jesus and says, here comes one. I, I'm not even worthy enough to untie his sandals. He will baptize you in what? The Holy Ghost and fire. Jesus has always been the baptizer of spirit. We've so relegated him to water salvation. And I'm telling you right now, that's true in the baptize in the name of Christ, whatever. But I'm telling you, Jesus comes and takes everything and baptizes it in the spirit, including the law. And so now what we have is not, an, uh, in your mind, an old law. Now we have the same law, just baptizing spirit. So it's not the letter, but it's the spirit of the law. And we're absolutely 100% supposed to keep the spirit of the law in our hearts. Does that make sense? 100% supposed to keep the, the, what is the law? Paul calls the law the law of love, the law of Christ, right? The, the new commandment, I give you the law of spirit. Where do you see this? Man, this blew my ever-loving mind. This blew my, are y'all okay this morning? Like I'm teaching, I know I'm teaching, but y'all okay because I'm, I'm trying to help you. I need you to walk out of this place and go, I'm supposed to reverence God and tremble and keep his law. So I've been studying this very different. I've been studying Matthew chapter 5 very hard for several weeks. I've got about five more weeks to go. And so I've really been digging this. And then, and then on Wednesday night, if you're not coming on Wednesday night to our Bible study, you're really missing out. We're going verse by verse through the, the scripture. And I asked this question to the class, and I've been asking my question. I've been asking myself this question because I just, I'm not smart enough to see it. And the question is this. What is the point with the first recorded miracle or sign, the wedding of Cana, turning water into wine. If I, I mean, I needed to be Jesus' publicist, his PR guy. What we're going to do, Jesus, is when you turn 18, not 30, that's too much time wasted, we're going to start ministry. Y'all out there? And what we're going to do first is we're not going to mess around with some water into wine stuff that really doesn't help anybody. What we're going to do, we're going to get everybody talking. We're going to raise like five people from the dead in a matter of a week. And you're going to be like so famous. Everybody's going to flock to you. And then we'll start a mailing list. It's going to be great. (laughs) I mean, of all the things Jesus did, heal lepers, make blind people see, take maimed people and make them walk, uh, uh, take dead people and make them live again. The first recorded miracle is he took water at a wedding where everybody was drunk and made wine. Don't you think that's odd? Am I the only one? (laughs) I'm like, isn't that odd? Okay, so I've been asking myself, and so I I did a deep dive into studying the wedding of Cana. Let's read through the wedding of Cana real fast. Jesus, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus' mom was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when the wine ran out, everybody say wedding feast. Everybody say wedding day. 
this wasn't a wedding day. This is a wedding feast. The wedding feast happened over a week. For over a week, every day, they feasted on food and drank wine every night. Amen? And they drank wine, and after only three days of a week-long wedding feast, they're already out of wine. They were not practicing moderation. The wine ran out on day three. And Jesus is standing there, and his mom walks up to him. Everybody knows how his mom can be, right? <clears throat> Boy, do something about this. Jesus, Taylor Swift ain't that, ain't that smart. Not Taylor Swift. She's not smart either, but Carrie Underwood, she ain't that smart. It's like this is the first Jesus take the wheel moment. That, one, that was funnier in my head. When, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus went up to Jesus and said, Jesus, they have no wine. And literally, this is what Jesus says to his mama. Do not talk to your mama this way. <laughs> uh, says to her, woman, uh, I would love to see my, my son look at my wife and go, woman? <laughs> it would be, be bad, okay? But if I was Chad, I'd be like, well, Jesus did it. Anyway, so. The point is, he's looked at her and he said, woman, what does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Y'all with me? I'm almost done, I promise. Woman, what does that have to do with me, us? My hour has not yet come. And I love what, his, I love what Mary did. She didn't even answer him. If that's not a good mama, you know what I'm saying? Like, she's like, I'm not, I'm not responding to you. This is, not a, this is not a debate, Jesus. I'm telling you, they're out of wine. Fix it. So he says, what does that do with me? My time not yet come. Turns away from Jesus, looks at the servants, and says, whatever he says, do, do it. Now, I, could, I really want to preach an entire series or something. I mean, there's so much here. How does she know to even ask him to do something about this if you believe that this is the first miracle ever? Okay, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, uh, Mary knows in her heart, she's had stuff hidden in her heart multiple times, contemplated thinking on these things in her heart, and she knows he can do something about their lack of wine. So he looks at Jesus, make, make it better. He says, leave me alone. He looks, she looks at the servant and says, whatever he says, do, do it, and walks off after she gave him the Look, next verse is key to understanding this. There were six, everybody say stone. stone. Everybody say six. six. Everybody say stone. stone. Everybody say uh, water pots. Water pots. This, is, this is extremely descriptive. Six, stone, not clay. Water pots used for purification, ceremonial purification. Containing, each one contains either 20 or 30 gallons each. It is, it is estimated that all six of these pots would have equaled about 120 gallons of water. Seven is the number of perfection. Six is the number of good man is God created man and called it. So man is good. God created man and he's called it good, but you see, it's not necessary. It's six, but it's not seven. 
Y'all with me? Six good system of stone. This would they they believe that Jesus did this in a a uh, very rich, probably a religious leader or priest home that would have been that would have in his home stored huge vats, twenty to thirty gallon stone pot. If you were if you were a poor man, not a poor man, but just not a super wealthy man, you would have had clay pots because they're easy to make and they're cheaper to make. But to take a big hunk of stone and to carve that sucker out to hold 30 gallons of water, this was an expensive piece that was used in a priest's home that was used for the purification rituals. It held water because water was the only thing up to this point that provided any cleansing. I'm preaching better than you're shouting. And so the, the thing is, is Jesus says, I want you to take what is good. The law of God is good. But it's just not yet been baptized in the Holy Ghost. What does wine represent in the scripture? The spirit. So Jesus takes what is good, the law, Right? These water pots specifically used for purification. And his very first ministry that's recorded is that he takes what is good, the law, what is water up until this point, and he just turns it into spirit. And not only is it spirit, but it's such good spirit that it's the wine reserved for the end. In the last days I will pour out my, as we wait for the groom. Y'all out there? So the groom gets credit for the poured out wine at the end time, the end of the feast. Y'all following what I'm y'all following me? So this is what Jesus does. He doesn't destroy the law. He takes the law, which is good, but not yet great. He takes the law, which is good, and he baptizes it in the Holy Spirit. And from this point forward, when Jesus teaches about the law, it's not a law that kills according to the letter, but it's a law that gives life because it gives spirit. And our job is to keep. The law. Therefore, I would say, the law, yes, please. Because, see, his law, baptizing spirit, will not pass away until everything's finished. Heaven and earth would pass away before the law passes away. So now you take Matthew chapter 5 and you take all the teachings of Jesus and the expectation comes back on the hearer to build his house on the rock. What is the rock? The teachings or the foundation, the law of God. That We're wise, we're men of wisdom when we build our house on the foundation of the rock. The law, the teachings of God. The law of love, the law of Christ. The law God handed down on Mount Sinai, the law that was instituted in creation, all of it now baptized in spirit. Amen? End of teaching. Go keep the law. Somebody, <laughs> see, you might say that. Everybody's like, ah. Oh. 
still, right? I just, I just spent almost 45 minutes telling you how to keep the law in a way that should give you life. And I said, go keep the law. And you're like, I mean, what he means is, you know, you're like, right? Okay. No, literally, what I mean, go keep the law. Go keep the law. Go fear God. God's restoring the true meanings of all these things to the church right now. All the things that we've tried to shove into the past, he's bringing them back, but he's bringing them back in truest meaning of what they really are, always supposed to be the true intention of the law, the fear of the Lord, the awe of God. So all these things, God's bringing them back to a place of spirit.